You're listening to KMUZ Turner. Visit our website at kmuz.org to see our complete program schedule and learn more about supporting KMUZ. Welcome to The Forum, our weekly public affairs program. We edit and rebroadcast recordings of lectures, interviews, and presentations of public interest to the Mid-Willamette Valley. Find our Facebook page, The Forum on KMUZ, for upcoming topics and to leave comments. Today's forum is a recording of yet another Salem City Club program that combines two of the perennial topics we talk about in the Mid-Willamette Valley. A new book that everyone could read so it sparks community discussions about our people, our issues, our outlook on part of a larger community, and the annual reminder we should all be prepared for the big one, the perhaps remote possibility of a disaster, an earthquake or tsunami, or maybe both. This year, those two concerns come together, as we'll hear in the interesting discussion. Good afternoon. Hello, I am Russ Beaton, chair of the Salem City Club Program Committee. I'm substituting today for our president, Ron Ekus, who could not be with us. I'd like to welcome you all to our annual Salem Reads Program. The City Club is in the 50th, 55th year, and I'm glad that you can join us for this, and I hope many other programs. The City Club's mission is to provide nonpartisan civil discourse on important civic issues. We will be presenting programs every two weeks through the spring when our season concludes at the end of May. Due to the ongoing pandemic, we will be continuing to present our programs virtually. And like everyone else, we hope to join everyone in person by this fall. We hope you'll sign up and join us. As always, I want to thank our members, our volunteers and our friends who continue to support the Salem City Club, your memberships, and donations enable us to continue presenting these programs. Without you, we couldn't do that. Thank you as well to Spire Management for the association services they provide. Salem City Club also depends on the generous support of our supporting business partners. These are KMUZ Community Radio, Lou Jean Fobert Graphic Design, Pioneer Trust Bank, Rich Duncan Construction, Virgil T. Golden Funeral Home, and Busy Bees Real Estate. Today's program is generously sponsored by the Salem Public Library Foundation, and now I'd like to introduce the foundation's executive director, Kate von Umerson, for some opening remarks, after which she will turn it over to Bob Martin, our program lead for the day. Kate, welcome, and you're on. Thank you, Russ, and thanks to the City Club for um, having our the sixth Salem Reads program. Uh, you've been with us from the very beginning and I'm grateful for that. I'm the executive director of the Salem Public Library Foundation. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about our organization. Um, we were founded in 1981 and the focus of the group that started the foundation was to provide library programs as well as build an endowment. And we've been doing that for over 40 years. Our, our mission is to provide enhancements to the Salem Public Library. And the most recent example of that was celebrated at your city club meeting 
uh, in December of the celebration of our new library. Um, if you weren't there for that meeting, the foundation's part in the seismic retrofit construction was to provide aesthetic enhancements to the library. And those included adding more windows, um, removing some stairs, expanding the youth areas and improving the entrance. So we were really happy that we could um, help with those projects. Um, the Library Foundation started Salem Reads six years ago and uh, um, has been a very successful program. Our, it's called Salem Reads One Book, One Community. We invite the entire community to read the same book and then participate in programs around the themes of the book in, in February. So we have all of our programs. This year, I believe we have 18 or 20 programs. Um, and this is one of the first ones. So uh, again, thank you very much to City Club. Um, this year, the chosen title is A Tale for the Time Being by Ruth Oseki. And it has uh, connections to Japan. There's intergenerational themes youth and connections to Buddhism. And there's also a, a theme running through the book where a Hello Kitty lunchbox ends up on a beach in British Columbia. And the notion is that it came in the tsunami. So that's where Shake Alert comes into this program today. So I encourage you to read it. There's copies available electronically or in print. And uh, the Salem Arts Salem Reads art exhibit is up at the library, along with a Japanese historical exhibit that is from the Willamette Heritage Center. So I invite everyone to come. The library hours right now are Tuesday through Saturday, 11 to 6. And so our goal with Salem Reads is to increase the library's visibility in the community and to introduce the library to new users and to encourage a love of, of reading amongst all of the, the people of Salem. If you'd like more information about the um, programs that are associated with Salem Reads, and I, like I said, it's just starting, you can go to our website, which is splfoundation.org. So um, thank you very much for joining us and thanks to the City Club for presenting this program. And now I'll pass it on to Bob. Thank you, Kate. Welcome to, I hope, a fascinating program. I'm sure it will be on a remarkable new technology, Shake Alert, an earthquake early warning system. This is a technology that provides us with an extra layer of safety. Even a few seconds can make a big difference. And in the case of an earthquake, it will give us an alert, letting us know that an earthquake has begun just before the serious shaking really starts. This is a relatively new technology, and we're delighted to welcome two people today who have a great deal of experience in not only emergency preparation, but also in this new technology called ShakeAlert. We have two speakers today, and our first speaker will be Lucy Walsh. She's based at the University of Oregon in the Department of Geologic Sciences. Lucy is, um, prior to her current work, she served as the public health emergency planner for the second largest county in the US and managed disaster response for the Arizona, New Mexico, El Paso region with the American Red Cross. With Shake Alert, uh, Lucy is the Oregon engagement coordinator for Shake Alert. And she also chairs the Shake Alert uh, Technical User Working Group. 
And finally, she leads the State of Oregon Shake Alert Committee. Our second speaker is Dr. Althea Rizzo, and we welcome her back for her second presentation at City Club. A few years ago, she joined us for a very informative presentation on earthquake preparedness. Uh, Dr. Rizzo has designed and implemented outreach programs for seismic hazards in Oregon and frequently speaks on earthquake and tsunami preparedness and risk reduction. She serves as the Geologic Hazards Program Coordinator with the Oregon Department of Emergency Management. Please join me now in welcoming our first speaker, Lucy Walsh. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon, and thank you to the City Club and members for inviting Althea and myself to talk to you today about ShakeAlert and earthquake preparedness. I'm going to kick it off and talk about ShakeAlert, what it is and how it works, and uh, what you should expect to see from it. Um, so we, the, the general public, have become much more aware of our earthquake hazards within our state over the last decade, uh, which, which is a really good thing. Um, but just so we're all on the same page today, I just want to start off by briefly going through uh, the reasons why Oregon can have and experience earthquakes. Oregon can experience earthquakes in three different ways. Uh, one is the subduction zone earthquake shown here in red. This type of earthquake occurs along the leading edge of the North American plate. Uh, and this is what we consider the big one, right? It would be similar to the Cascadia earthquake that indigenous people here experienced back in 1700, uh, or also similar to the Tohoku quake that occurred in Japan about 10 years ago. So subduction zone earthquakes have really widespread effects and they can also generate tsunamis. Uh, earthquakes can also occur within the overriding North American plate, shown here in yellow, those little circles. Uh, these coastal earthquakes produce really intense localized shaking much like the 1993 Scotts Mills earthquake, if you happen to be here uh, during that time to experience it. So damage from these types of crustal earthquakes are really concentrated near the epicenter of the earthquake uh, where the shaking is strongest. And lastly, earthquakes can occur deep within the subducting Juan de Fuca plate shown here in pink. Uh, these deep earthquakes can cause shaking fell over a wide region and a good example of that is the Nisqually earthquake that occurred in the Puget Sound in 2001. So all of these earthquakes release energies in waves, uh, and it's these waves that shake the ground. Now, first wave is what we call the P wave or primary wave. Um, it's fast moving and relatively not damaging. Uh, and then the second wave release is called the S wave or the secondary wave, um, and it is the damaging wave. That S wave follows the P wave, but at about half the speed. And that'll become important in a second. So why do these earthquakes occur? Um, a little geology lesson, it's because of plate tectonics. So um, the Juan de Fuca plate in the Pacific Northwest is getting shoved beneath the North American plate. The Pacific plate uh, down in California is grinding along the edge of the North American plate. And really these motions don't happen very easily. And over time, strain builds up along these plate boundaries. And once that strain is too high, these plates slip past each other really suddenly, uh, releasing energy in the form of an earthquake. So ShakeAlert is the West Coast uh, Earthquake Early Warning System for the United States. It's managed by USGS 
and operated by a coordinated coalition of federal, state, and university partners in Oregon, Washington, and California. So how does ShakeAlert work? Uh, it all starts with a network of seismic sensors that are deployed across Oregon, Washington, and California that are constantly measuring ground motion. So on the slide here is an example of a ShakeAlert seismic station in Wedderburn, Oregon, which is over on the Southern Oregon coast. So as these sensors like the one here at Wedderburn feel ground motion, they send that ground motion data to USGS, United States Geological Survey, and its data processing centers. Uh, and because today communications can move so fast, systems can actually send alerts to people or to things uh, before shang shaking arrives. So bringing it uh, all together using this diagram on the screen, uh, when an earthquake occurs and more and more of these seismic sensors across the region feel that ground motion, i.e. the energy waves, the P wave uh, shown here in yellow and the S waves shown here in red, uh, they all send that ground motion data to USGS and its processing centers where fast working algorithms confirm that an earthquake is occurring and begin rapidly estimating characteristics of that earthquake, including uh, the location of the rupturing fault, the magnitude or size, or excuse me, or strength of the earthquake, estimated shaking intensities across the affected area. And all of this just takes a couple of seconds to complete, uh, thereby providing people and critical infrastructure seconds to tens of seconds of warning time to take action before strong shaking arrives. Uh, just a little aside, you can think of this process like we think about a thunderstorm, right? First you see lightning and then you hear thunder. The farther away you are from the thundercloud, the more time between seeing the lightning and hearing the thunder, right? So you can think of the P wave, that first uh, energy wave release like the lightning and the S wave like the thunder. The farther away you are from the earthquake and the rupturing fault, the more time you have before the S wave arrives at your location. Uh, but just like thunder, uh, there is one caveat. If you are directly above the earthquake epicenter, you will not receive an alert before you feel shaking. And that's just because there is not enough time to detect, to confirm, and to alert before that S wave arrives. Uh, let's talk about what ShakeAlert is and what it's not. Uh, one of the common misconceptions about ShakeAlert and earthquake early warning is that it can predict earthquakes before they occur. And that's not possible. We just don't have the technology uh, to do that. So science can tell us a lot about general earthquake hazards, but we cannot predict exactly where or when that strain along those plate boundaries will be released. But ShakeAlert can detect an earthquake that is already occurring, and it can do so really rapidly. And that distinction is really important because we want to avoid the, the case of giving people the impression that a shake alert or, or any technology out there can predict earthquakes because that's just not the case. Okay, um, second, the warning, as we kind of touched on on the last slide, the warning you receive depends on your proximity to the rupturing fault. So the farther away you are from the rupturing fault, the more time you will have. Um, or the more, the longer warning time you'll receive. And lastly, um, ShakeAlert is just one tool in our larger earthquake toolbox that can help Oregonians protect themselves uh, in the event of an earthquake. 
So keep retrofitting your house, keep building your preparedness kits. Shake Alert does not take the place of those other preparedness actions. So Shake Alert public alerts have been rolling out across the West Coast uh, over the last few years. California began public alerting for earthquake early warning in October, yeah, October of 2019. Uh, Oregon followed in March of last year in Washington in uh, May of 2021. They actually had this great campaign because it was released on May 4th. So they did a lot with May the 4th be with you. <laughs> it's pretty good if you go look for it. Um, so yeah, currently Shakler public alerts are enabled throughout the West Coast and they are enabled through three different ways. Wireless emergency alerts or WIAs, cell phone apps, and Android operating system alerts. So how can you receive a public alert on your phone in Oregon? Uh, well, in Oregon, there's three ways. Uh, first is the wireless emergency alerts, also called WIAs. These are text-based alerts that automatically are on your cell phone. Uh, they look just like an amber alert um, or a silver alert, right? Uh, you don't need to sign up, but you should really make sure that your phone settings are enabled um, to receive WIAs. Next, built-in alerts. So Android phones only at this point have a built-in service uh, to deliver ShakeAlert text-based alerts. Again, like a WIA, you don't need to sign up for it. It's automatically on your phone, but it's always good to make sure that your settings enable those services. Uh, and then the last option are downloadable apps. So in Oregon, there's two current apps uh, that are available to you. One is called Quake Alert USA. The other is called MyShake. And these apps are free and you can go to your app store and download them. So I'll just uh, cover this briefly and, and Althea is gonna hit this point home too because we really wanna make sure you're, you're well informed and aware. Uh, but this is an example of what a wireless emergency alert looks like on your phone. Uh, it'll say earthquake detected, drop cover and hold on, protect yourself. Uh, it's also available in Spanish. And it is that same really, you know, annoying, but uh, noticeable noise like an Amber Alert. Uh, this is an example of Android, uh, a text-based alert, but also comes with some graphics, in this case, what to do uh, when you receive this alert, drop cover and hold on. Here are just examples of what the MyShake app and the Quake Alert USA app are. Again, a sound, these actually talk to you, and then they also have graphics as well. So we've talked about ShakeAlert, how it works. So now let's just talk about when you will receive an alert, kind of define those expectations. So uh, first, we should talk about a little bit uh, how we describe earthquakes. So we use magnitude and intensity to describe earthquakes. And you may have seen an image like this before on the left, it's called a shake map. This is actually a, a shake map example from the Scotts Mills earthquake in 1993. Uh, it shows how much of an area or the region shook during an earthquake. The hotter the color, the more shaking that it felt. So magnitude is the size of the earthquake and it measures the amount of energy released. But intensity reflects the severity of shaking felt from an earthquake at a specific location. Um, so an earthquake only produces one magnitude but it can produce many different uh, shaking intensities, again, depending on how close you are to the earthquake. Another analogy for you, just to drive this home, you can think about magnitude and intensity like, um, like a light bulb and the light it casts. So light bulbs have a fixed wattage or energy, right? 
And depending on where you are in the room, that intensity of light will change, right? The closer you are to the light bulb, the more intense the light will be. The farther away from the bulb, the weaker the light will be. So Shake Alert uses magnitude and intensity to determine when alerts should be sent uh, and when they should not. The number of people alerted will really depend on that magnitude and the estimated intensities of that earthquake. And USGS has set minimum magnitude and shaking intensity thresholds that an earthquake must meet before an alert is delivered. And both these two metrics have to be met before an alert goes out. So as you can see on the, the table here on the screen, for a wireless emergency alert, uh, the earthquake must be at least a magnitude five. And the areas that will be alerted for this earthquake must be expected to experience at least a shaking intensity of, of four, which is roughly like uh, the potential for rattling your dishes or windows. Uh, Android and cell phone apps are allowed to alert for slightly smaller earthquakes, magnitudes of four and a half, and estimated shaking intensities of around, uh, or at least of three. So beyond receiving a public alert to your cell phone, how else can ShakeAlert protect our communities? Automation is the answer. So critical infrastructure can use ShakeAlert to initiate protective measures to really build our collective community resilience. So for example, uh, a local public utility can use ShakeAlert to automatically shut off the flow of drinking water from uh, their water tanks, thereby saving that drinking water for citizens um, and honestly saving tens of thousand dollars in damage and the time it takes to replace those systems. Um, a school district could use ShakeAlert automatically to, um, to warn students and staff over their PA system, allowing them a time to get to a safe space and protect themselves from falling objects in the classroom. Uh, and lastly, as an example of fire stations, you know, um, you can automatically open bay doors and alert on and off uh, duty command staff that, any, you know, an event is coming, an earthquake is happening, um, which allows uh, these folks to deploy their engines from their fire stations and not be stuck behind potentially compromised bay doors. So here are actual examples of how folks around the West Coast are using ShakeAlert to automate critical infrastructure actions. So in the city of Albany, uh, they are using ShakeAlert to automatically close the valves and shut off the waterways at their drinking water reservoirs. Again, um, preventing loss of water from burst, you know, potentially burst pipes downstream. Uh, up in Washington, the Stanwood Communal School District is using ShakeAlert to automatically warn students and staff via their public uh, address system or PA system. And next slide. And uh, BART, the Bay Area Rapid Transit System down in California is actually using ShakeAlert to slow and stop trains um, with the effort to prevent derailment during strong shaking and protect those passengers on board uh, and their equipment, right? Uh, BART actually uses, uh, their emergency plan is to use the BART system to deliver a lot of emergency supplies after an event, so it keeps that intact. Uh, just in case you're asking yourself, like, if I can get a public alert, isn't that good enough? You know, why should we be investing in infrastructure automation? You know, to be truly successful in earthquake resilience, 
um, we have to mitigate both human and infrastructure loss. And infrastructure automation not only minimizes those direct losses, but also the indirect losses and any secondary hazards like fires or lack of clean drinking water. You know, many other hazards, name it, like floods, tornadoes, even volcanic eruptions, they naturally provide warning time before they happen, but earthquakes don't. So it's really hard to mentally prepare yourself to do the right thing or the most resilient thing uh, without hours or days of warning time. So ShakeAlert can provide a service that does something without relying on an individual to react to, to process, and to make a split decision, split decision um, during a really stressful event. ShakeAlert provides, you know, even if it's a couple of seconds, automation only needs a couple of seconds to take action. So with that, uh, I'm going to turn it over to Althea to finish our conversation today. And yeah, we look forward to our conversation afterwards. You're tuned to All Volunteer Community Radio, KMUZ, Turner, broadcasting to the Mid-Willamette Valley on 88.5 and 100.7 FM. And this is our weekly public affairs program, The Forum. I'm Forum producer Stella Schaffer. At the University of Oregon, Lucy Walsh is the Oregon Engagement Coordinator for the ShakeAlert Earthquake Early Warning System, a new thing that may offer a little more time to let us know when things get real. Althea Rizzo has created plans for risk reduction in seismic awareness and earthquake preparedness and risk reduction programs in Oregon and beyond. And it's all tied in with Salem Reads, a community-wide drive to share a chosen title and read the book, this year a novel about a quake and tsunami event affecting people on two continents, titled A Tale for Time Being by Ruth Ozeki. Good afternoon, everyone. I wanted to talk a little bit more about how you get these alerts on your personal advice. Um, Lucy did mention these three different ways, but I just wanted to make sure that uh, this is reiterated so that you know how best to get these alerts when they do happen. So the wireless emergency alert is a system run by FEMA that goes out to most smartphones automatically. If you've gotten an Amber Alert, you're going to be familiar with the type of alerts that will come over your phone for a WIA alert. And then she also mentioned the MyShake and the Quake Alert apps that are available on phone and in Android. Uh, and then again, Android also has uh, its own separate smart device OS that provides this type of alert to you. And the thing to really remember is that this is just one way of getting you very useful information. We do occasionally run tests of these systems and you do need to go into your smartphones and set up those test alerts so that when we do send them, you will know that you are going to be able to get these alerts when that real event happens. So for an iPhone, you have to go in and turn it on specifically. And then again, the Android has a different way of going in. So you can find this kind of information on the, the net um, by just Googling you know, how to set up WIA test alerts on an iPhone or an Android. So we do recommend that folks do that so you get the test alerts. Um, so what does that alert look like? Um, right now, it's just the text and it comes in English and in Spanish. 
um, and it does make that lovely sound that <laughs> comes across very similar to the amber alerts. Uh, so you will be able to hear it. And so the question is, you know, what do you do when you get that alert on your mobile device or you hear it over a PA system? So what the recommended action is, is to drop cover and hold on. Um, you know, we kind of grew up being told to go into the doorway, but we know that that is not the safest thing to do. What you want to do is to drop to the ground immediately after getting the alert. And then you want to move under cover and then hold on during the shaking. When it happens, um, you know, you're not going to have time to really think. And so that's why it's great to have this alert to give you a, just a few seconds to be able to process the information before the actual shaking happens. So the reason why we recommend drop, cover, and hold is that the most common injury from an earthquake is from stuff falling on us or from us being thrown to the ground during the shaking. And so by dropping and covering, you're going to prevent most of the injuries from an earthquake. Now, if you are in the tsunami inundation zone over on the coast, um, you know, once you finish drop covering and hold and the shaking stops, and then you know you need to get to high ground as soon as possible by foot and the, to stay there. Uh, when we have a Cascadia subduction zone cause tsunami, uh, the tsunami is going to arrive fairly quickly after the initial shaking of the Cascadia subduction zone. And there isn't going to be a separate alert for the tsunami. In fact, um, we know that the earthquake really is your warning for the tsunami. So when you do get an alert, if you're inland, you drop curve and hold. If you are over on the coast in the inundation zone, you get to high ground by foot as quickly as you can, and then you stay there. So once you're um, to high ground, you wanna make sure that you're following your emergency plan. And this goes for folks that are inland, because um, I'm sure that uh, you're very clever people and have at least thought about how to uh, deal with an earthquake uh, and what you're gonna be doing afterwards. But there's a lot of information out there on how to get prepared. And we've really learned the importance of preparedness over these last few years. Um, you know, with the uh, wildland fires, with the flooding, uh, we had a distant tsunami just a couple of weeks ago from the Tonga volcano eruption. It, and so it's just a lot of different reasons why we need to be preparing. And we really need to do this before the emergency strikes. Um, if you all remember back in March of 2020 um, and how we could not find toilet paper. So folks who had so cleverly been stocking up on those Costco bricks of toilet paper were doing pretty good and weren't having to stand in lines or to order from China to get their toilet paper. So you want to make sure that you are doing this so that you and your family can be self-sufficient for at least two weeks after a, a major event. So when you're preparing for the hazards, we're gonna have different hazards depending on where you are. So if you uh, live out near the urban wildland interface, you know, you're gonna have uh, more of an issue with wildland fire than someone who lives downtown Portland or downtown Salem. And so we need to think about preparing for hazards in different ways for different places. You know, everyone should have a grab and go bag, but we should also um, prepare so that we can shelter in place. 
And so we also spend different amounts of time in different places during the day. You know, we go to work, we go to school, um, and we are here at home. So we should have some preparedness supplies pretty much wherever it is that we spend a significant amount of time. So when you're looking at it, you know, you kind of need to think about what does your family need? What kind of things do you eat? Um, do you have special diets that you have to think about? Do you have medical needs? Do you have pets? Do you have livestock? Um, and so it's it helpful to kind of examine your lifestyle over a two week period to understand what your family needs. You know, how much milk do you go through? How much bread, how much cheese? You know, what are the medications you take? Um, you know, how much pet food do you go through? So that you have an understanding of how much food you're gonna to need to stock for to have that two week period of self-sufficiency. So we have this grab and go bag. We all grew up with this, you know, the 72 hour kit. And this should be in a very easily um, accessible area uh, so that it's quickly grabbed and on the way out the door. And this should have basics of food and water, some first aid and any medication or copies of your prescription that you have, um, important documents. You know, you can have hard copies or you can have a thumb drive with the documents on it, some clothes, some hygiene, and whatever else it is that you need to have for those um, first few days uh, to make your life a little bit more comfortable it could be, uh, you know, chapstick, it could be toothpaste, it could be, you know, deck of cards. Um, I have a friend who keeps a copy of Tolstoy in his grab and go peg, because after using Tolstoy, you know, his situation never seems quite as bad. So when you're preparing your household for long-term off-grid living, for this is for the sheltering in place piece. You wanna make sure that you have access to water, uh, shelter and food. When we're looking at water, um, this is Oregon, so we do have uh, opportunities to find water, um, but thinking about different ways that you have to make clean water. Uh, we need approximately one gallon per person per day um, for cleanliness and, and for drinking and for food preparedness. And there's a number of different ways that you can clean found water. You can filter it and you can boil it. You can use um, bleach. Uh, you can use chemical, you can use different types of uh, filtering systems. So there's a lot of different ways that you can make clean water in addition to possibly having clean water on hand. So when you're looking at your home, you know, you want to make sure that your home can stand up to that shaking. If your home has been built since about the mid 1990s, um, you, you may be okay, but if it's before the mid-1990s, you probably have some retrofits to do. And the important thing to do is to tie the walls to the foundation and tie the roof to the walls. Um, and seismically retrofitting your home, if it's not a super complicated process, uh, it's not as expensive as you think. Um, I know people that have spent more on granite countertops for their kitchen than they spent on a seismic retrofit. So this is something that we really encourage people to do if they live in an older home. And then you wanna look at the non-structural things around your home, because like I said earlier, most of the injuries are coming from things falling on us or from us being thrown to the ground. So look around your home and look at your bookshelves, look at your china hutches, that heavy mirror in the hallway. Um, anything that can fall down off the walls should probably be secured so it can't do that. And then looking at long-term off-grid living, it could take, depending on where you live, 
several weeks to a couple of months, if not longer, to restore basic utilities. There were uh, residential areas after the Christchurch earthquake that were without sewer systems for over two years. So it could be a while before services are restored. And that's why it's really important for us to think about this ahead of time and how we're going to deal with those kinds of situations. And then we wanna look at food. Uh, and there's different ways that you can look at this. Uh, you can have some emergency foods. You know, These are uh, maybe that five gallon bucket of emergency food you can get at Costco. Uh, this could be uh, mountain home freeze-dried foods. It could be MREs. You know, one of those um, types of foods that will last through the next um, millennium. You know, having some of those kind of stuck away in your garage is, is a good idea for just something to fall back on. But then we encourage people to kind of stock up as they go grocery shopping. You know, the next time you go grocery shopping, you might pick up some extra tuna fish or um, some extra foods that are shelf stable that you can build up the stock. And then, you know, you can also think about raising your own, you know, this is, this is Oregon. So I think it's almost required to have uh, chickens and goats in your backyard. I may be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure that there's some rule that Oregonians must own goats. Uh, and the thing to remember is Many of the things that we are going to be needing to do after a Cascadia subduction zone earthquake or any large uh, natural disaster are things that we already do as Oregonians. We, we tend to go camping a lot. We spend a lot of time outdoors. Uh, we go hunting, we go fishing, we have gardens, we go hiking and biking. So all of these things really add to the skills and our ability to recover quickly after a, a large scale disaster. So what I'm going to encourage people to do is to take two steps today that aren't gonna cost you anything that will mean that you go to bed more prepared tonight than when you woke up this morning. And if you're really ambitious, you can do all three. And the first thing that you can do is start a conversation, and that could be in person. It can be social media. You can turn to the person on uh, sitting on the couch with you today or if you're watching from home uh, and, and talk about what your emergency plans might be. You might share this information out on social media. You might call a family member. You might mention it in the grocery store checkout line. Just have a conversation about what emergency preparedness is and what your plans might be. And then put an out-of-state contact into your cell phone. Um, because after an event like this is not the time to try to remember um, somebody's phone number. And what you want to do is have somebody, preferably east of the Mississippi, that's your out-of-state contact so that everybody in your family circle or your social circle uh, can call that one person, um, Aunt Martha in Ohio, uh, so that she can kind of be the hub of information. And if you put it into your contacts under one EQ text um, for the name, uh, it'll pop up at the top of your contact list. And the third thing that you can do is uh, grab a pair of old shoes, some gloves, and a flashlight or a headlight. 
uh, and put them into a shopping bag and put them underneath your bed so that if something happens uh, after uh, in, in the eat at, at night, you've got shoes, you've got gloves, and you've got flashlights. And so you probably have all of those things already in your home. You just need to pull them together before you go to bed tonight and have them handy in case something happens. Because the thing to remember is we can do this. We recover from uh, events all the time and it may take us a while. You know, we have seen other countries go through what we are expecting to happen here in Oregon, but we know that people do recover from these eventually. And we know that we can take those mitigation and preparedness steps before they happen so that we can recover much quickly. I'm going to turn it over for Q&A. Thank you, Althea and Lucy. What a great presentation and a reminder of what we do need to do to be ready. I'm going to start with the first question. I know at least two people who don't have cell phones, and this is either to Lucy or Althea. And so if you don't have a, a cell phone, is there a way, a notification system for Right at this moment, cell phones are the fastest way to get shake alert. However, Oregon has a alerting system that goes out statewide uh, that does go over landlines, and that's called OR Alert. And so you can sign up for OR Alert so that when they do get that integration into that system, you will be able to get it to a landline. But like Lucy had talked about, there's also ways that uh, we can put in PA systems so that if you're in a public place, um, you can get that alert. Lucy, did you have more to add to that? No, oh, just touching on that. I mean, the, the current public alert that ShakeAlert provides is through a cell phone. But as Althea mentioned, as this becomes more integrated into our infrastructure as communities, there'll be different ways to receive alerts. Um, and there are options with current providers now, if you're say a business, that you might have um, an option for like an email type alerting system, uh, something along those lines. Um, again, that's not public, but it's, it's something that's available for, for businesses. Okay, thank you for that. And now a question from Dave McMillan, which I'll read. If you get a warning on your phone or other method, Presumably you have some time. Wouldn't you want to get outside instead of dropping to the floor? That's a really good question. And we get this question very frequently, but we recommend that you drop cover and hold because one, we don't know exactly how much time you have. And when you only have seconds, that's really not enough time to get somewhere safely because you don't want to try to be running during the heavy shaking because it's likely that you can become injured. You are gonna have stuff falling down during the shaking. There was one study after Christchurch earthquake that showed that people in unreinforced masonry buildings who tried to leave the building had a higher injury and casualty rate than people who had stayed in place because the facades of the buildings fell down and, and those folks were injured. So we really encourage people to drop cover and hold on and wait until the shaking stops and then to evacuate the buildings. 
I think your graphic showed um, somebody going under a table. So if you're in a building that's collapsing, should you look for something that gives you some cover or no, just drop cover and roll where you are? Your best bet is to drop cover as close to you as possible. But this is also where you kind of want to think ahead. So maybe you might want to buy a really sturdy oak kitchen table that you can shelter under in case of uh, an earthquake. What a good idea for a shopping trip. Um, I'm an so, enabler. <laughs> so thank you. So next question from Hans West. Are there any long-term plans for having earthquake sensors for the big one as actually situated along the ocean subduction fault. The ShakeLert system as it exists today is an onshore system. So all of our seismic sensors across Oregon, I believe there's about 170 of them right now in our state alone, are all on land. There is advocacy at this moment, um, mostly by Representative DeFazio, who I know is retiring, so hopefully someone will carry on this torch, but to build an offshore system that complements the onshore system. Uh, Japan, for example, has both an onshore and offshore system. And like, like they do, they have a subduction zone margin. And so for those specific type of subduction zone earthquakes, an offshore system does provide you a little bit more time. It's something in the many future years to come, we hope, happens, but it is a big undertaking and will require quite a bit of funding. The technology exists. It's just uh, we, need, <laughs> we need good advocacy for it. A good question. Keyword advocacy. And this question from Paul, is the state of Oregon investing more in earthquake uh, preparedness, I guess, or earthquake sensing and other disaster preparedness nowadays? And where will that money be invested in the years ahead? I'll let Lucy talk about the future of the ShakeAlert system, and then I will uh, have a comment after that about general preparedness and mitigation. Yeah, we receive uh, federal funding right now, the universities across the West Coast, to build out the ShakeAlert seismic network. So again, that's in California, Oregon, and Washington, and, and here at UVO, we, uh, we manage the Oregon part of it. There is a, it's called a technical implementation plan that the USGS set forth for the optimal amount of seismic sensors across our state that are distributed enough in the right places, also knowing the risk, you know, population versus earthquake faults. And so we are very close to meeting that technical implementation plan goal here in Oregon. We have about 50 more seismic sensors to deploy, and there is congressional funding in place to do that right now. That's where we are in terms of where the ShakeAlert system is at in terms of infrastructure. Oregon has started to invest uh, quite a bit of money into mitigating infrastructure for a cascading subduction zone earthquake. We have had for almost a decade now a seismic retrofit program for schools, hospitals, first responder facilities. And so we have spent quite a few millions of dollars to improve those buildings. ODOT is looking at uh, creating hardened corridors so that they have prioritized certain routes so that they can get resources quickly to different areas. They are also looking at mitigating the critical infrastructure hub in Portland 
where you know 95% of the liquid fuel comes into Oregon from other places. And so we are starting to invest in this mitigating the infrastructure and our built environment. But you have to remember, you know, we're kind of we're kind of behind the, the curve here because Japan has been uh, knowing about their uh, earthquake and tsunami issues for hundreds of years, whereas we didn't know about it until the mid 1980s. So we have a lot of catching up to do. And that's why it's really important for individuals to take responsibility and, and make sure that they can take care of themselves for a couple of weeks after a Cascadia event. Because if you can handle Cascadia, you can pretty much handle anything that mother nature can throw at you. Well, and we can learn from Japan, I hope. So, and have, I think. So, um, so I, I, I will say just quickly, I think the one special thing about Oregon is um, we, we were ahead of the curve on, um, on resiliency. Like we were one of the first states in the nation to have a state resilience officer uh, in Oregon, part of the governor's office or governor's cabinet. Um, and one of the focuses of that state resilience officer is earthquakes and being prepared and mitigating for it. So I think that is one good thing that Oregon is, is doing looking ahead. Terrific. Good to hear. So George Dyer has a question. Do we know locally where to go for an emergency center, which is stocked with supplies? Probably not at this point, because we, for one thing, most communities don't have a stock of supplies. There's some communities have, have created caches, some have not. Um, we will be really relying on externally provided supplies unless Salem decides to step up and create those caches of supplies. And we also don't know what buildings are gonna be standing afterwards. Another reason why it's important for individuals and families to be self-sufficient, because remember everyone that you're going to be relying on to respond and to get you resources are also going to be victims of the earthquake. We are gonna be dealing with our families and we're gonna be dealing with our neighborhoods first before we can even get into the office, if we can get into the office. That's the reason why we really encourage you to take that responsibility because we just don't have that ability to get supplies quickly to areas. Points of distribution will be set up and, and their water and food and things like that will be available. It's just going to take us time to get into the area. We're going to be relying on folks from the East Coast, from other places around the world to help us out because it's going to affect the entire Pacific Northwest when it happens. So I, I think in our previous um, earthquake preparedness program, and this might have even been from you, Althea, um, that we were told to consider ourselves as first responders, consider ourselves and those around us as the first responders, because that's indeed what would happen. So Lucy, um, I've got a, a question for you with respect to um, the shake alert system and distinguishing, I don't know much about seismic movement and whatnot, but with respect to volcanic activity and earthquake activity, does that pick up? the volcanic activity and distinguish between the two? Seismic instruments generally are very, very sensitive. And there's a wide array of seismic sensor types um, that are good for different things. Um, and so for example, the most sensitive uh, seismic sensors we have often are on volcanoes. 
seismic activity related to volcanoes is often very small magnitude events. For example, when magma moves or new magma is injected into the um, volcanic chamber, you know, that cracks some rock and that is an earthquake, right? But they're usually very, very small. Scientists and seismologists over decades have been looking at earthquakes or ground motions from a variety of different sources and are very good at interpreting what is a true earthquake, what's a rock fall, what's a loud truck driving by, you know, um, so yes, um, we can distinguish between all these different things. And, and honestly, to, to a trained seismologist's eye, they look very different than maybe, you know, the general public might see it. Sure. All right. Well, thank you for that. And I'm afraid with that, we are out of time. Thank you so much for being here and giving us this critical information. And with that, I will turn it over to Russ. Well, thank you for attending today's program. And thank you to Althea and to Lucy for informing us about this important technology and, and an issue that uh, to some degree couldn't be more important than we all face. You can visit SalemCityClub.com for more details and to register for any other upcoming programs. With that, we're done for the day and thank you very much for joining us. You've been listening to this year's Earthquake Preparedness Panel at a recent midday virtual gathering of Salem City Club. While it's an annual event, this year's Quake Awareness featured new discussions and the introduction of the Shake Alert Earthquake Early Warning System, which might offer more timely warnings when a big seismic event's about to happen. KMUZ would like to thank Salem City Club for the audio recording to make this program. The entire panel discussion and Q&A is permanently posted on the City Club archive at SalemCityClub.com. This is Community Radio, KMUZ, Turner, broadcasting local news and public information for the Mid-Willamette Valley. This program is aired on Friday at noon and repeated Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock. Thanks for listening.